Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Well, good morning. Whether you're here on campus or you're watching us online, we want to welcome you to Sunridge. You can take a seat. Please, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here, if you're a guest. And uh, how many of you have seen the movie The Truman Show? Yeah, it's an oldie, 1998, I think it came out. It's such a great movie because Jim Carrey plays this person who lives in this, what he thinks is like this perfect, idyllic world, um, but it's all fake, right? And, you know, given the way things are today in the world, I sometimes find myself thinking it sure would be nice to live in Truman's world, uh, only uh, I wouldn't want it to be fake, I'd want it to be real especially when you think about um, some of the things that have been going on in the world in which we live, uh, all the mass shootings that we've had recently. And um, I mean, it's almost like you can't fully mourn one without another one appearing in the news. And we're all watching a war take place on television as never before. Uh, seeing it day to day, and again, it seems like nobody can do anything. We just have to watch a nation be destroyed and people suffer. And then, of course, I won't even talk about politics today, how divided we are. So sometimes Truman's world sounds pretty good to me. You know, this idea of being one in heart and mind, just that phrase, aren't you, aren't you attracted to that? It's like, man, I'd like to live in that world. And that statement is followed by uh, such a powerful section of the book of Acts. Now, you now you've have heard the phrase before, the devil's in the details, right? Yeah. Well, in this case, the spirit is in the details, okay? And it wasn't easy <clears throat> for them to have this unity, and it wasn't accidental, If you're just joining us, we're in a study of the book of Acts, which is the history of the church, basically the first 30 years in the first century of who we are. These are our people. And we've been saying, you know, we're learning about the history of our church, our roots, but it's our story too. And in fact, if they were still writing the Bible, they would be writing about the church in Temecula called Sunridge. And uh, we're just the continuing part of the story of what God is doing in the world. And in this church, Luke tells us that they were of one heart and mind. And the way that is constructed in the original language, it's basically comprehensive unity in in their main thoughts, in their hearts toward one another. They experienced this unity. And as Jed noted last week, at this time, this is an important part of what's happening, the church is all Jewish. 
So they have a lot of commonalities. They have a lot of things that are common. But still, even in the first century, there are many kinds of Jews that come from different regions in the world. And so it isn't like it's easy. It's going to get more difficult as these non-Jewish people come into the church called Gentiles. And we'll see that happen. But they have this beautiful unity. And one of the evidences that Luke tells us about in his book uh, of that oneness of heart and mind is that they, they claimed none of their possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had, which, in other words, they're saying that on occasion they would sell their assets so that no one else, so that others wouldn't lack. And then Luke gives us a specific example, just so we have like a person attached to this, a real-life story, Joseph, in verse 36, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We're going to see he, we're going to see Barnabas emerge as a bigger player as we go through the book. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So that, that makes it really personal, right? Here's a person that did this, not just generally speaking, that people were doing this. Here's a person. And one of the questions I have that we're going we're gonna to talk about at the end of the message it's like, is this, is this what this church is supposed to do? So just keep that in your mind. And, I, you know, for me, it'd be really great to just cut this message off right here and talk about how beautiful it was to be in the early church. Um, but it wouldn't be the whole story. But the truth is what people do, what social groups do with their possessions and their money really says a lot more about their values than anything else. But the story doesn't end here. There's those pesky details that are part of it. And one of the things I love about what Luke does in his record of both Jesus' life and then here of the early church is he gives us a very real picture of what was going on. And so immediately following this beautiful section of Scripture where they all share their possessions with one another and sing kumbaya and uh, they have they're of one mind and one spirit one heart in acts 5 verse 1 now a man named ananias together with his wife sapphira also sold a piece of property and with his wife's full knowledge he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles feet so the issue that Luke is noting for us here is not that this couple didn't give everything that they got from the sale of this property, but that in collusion, they, they lied about their generosity. So they pretended that they were giving it all. And we'd all agree that's pretty much a weasel move, right? And we're not told how this came to light to uh, Peter and the apostles, but uh, when, when he confronts Ananias, he drops dead right there. We don't know why he died. We don't know what caused his death. But the way Luke is telling it, it's directly related to what was happening here. And that's further reinforced um, when three hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in. And she doesn't know what has happened to her husband. And they ask her about the price of the land. And she lies. And then she drops dead too. And then Luke comments in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
Uh, yeah. So a f- couple of just sidebar notes to this story, and we're, we're going to move on. First of all, the phrase that Luke uses, um, in your NIV, it says he, they kept back a portion. Literally, this word means embezzled. So the idea here is that they were stealing from God. Not because they didn't give it all, but because they were stealing something of a reputation. They were, they were pretending to be something that they weren't. They could have sold this land, said we're going to give this portion of it, and I don't think that there had been any problem. Another interesting thing is what Peter says of the motivation uh, or the cause of this hypocrisy in verse 3. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? Now, assuming here that um, these Ananias and Sapphira are actually believers, the question here is, can Satan fill the heart of a believer, right? And I, I think that this can happen in a way because this is not describing possession, but it's describing control of our hearts. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We get the whole, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit when we become Christians. But does the Spirit get more of us? Remember, we've talked about this. Or do we get more of the Spirit as we release more control? But it's obvious here, and I think it's obvious in what we observe, that we can have the Holy Spirit in our heart and yet be controlled by something else in opposition to the Spirit. So I don't think that we can just assume because we're Christians and we have the Holy Spirit that every thought or every impulse or value or action that we have comes from God. And sometimes I think the Holy Spirit gets a bad name by some of us who, like, blame our stuff on him. The last observation I want to make here is the overall effect that this has on those outside the church. We know that this would have a purifying effect for those that were part of the church. But look what Peter says about those on the outside of the church. Verse 13, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So highly regarded, but reluctant to join. And I'm sure you get the picture, right? It's like, uh, I like it, but mm, I'm not sure if I want all of that yet. The thing here is when God is moving, among people, there's always an amazing transformation that takes place. People are attracted to what God is doing in the world, and yet people see that that movement is serious. And I think the lesson here is certainly the gospel is attractional. It's invitational, as it should be. But the gospel also changes us. A weak gospel is more like a bait and switch. It's a false gospel in the end. And churches tend to like become powerless because we choose one or the other. We can become heavy on transformation, but have no impact because we're isolated and we're unloving in our differences. Or we can be super loving and expressive of that love, but have no transformation. A church's influence, though, increases as it becomes more holy and authentic and genuine in faith. 
Verse 14, nevertheless, even though they had these mixed feelings about the church and what was happening there, more and more, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So there's kind of a paradoxical thing going on here. Now, as these first century Christians are living out their faith and telling others about Jesus, how do those in the religious community react to that? Verse 17, the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party, the Sadducees. Remember, Jed talked about their Sadducee uh, because they don't believe in the resurrection. They were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. So they're in jail for giving the gospel. Seeing where this is happening kind of gives a bigger picture for what is going on and why they might have been so threatened. In verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Solomon's colonnade, what is that? See, the temple in Jerusalem at this time is not just like a little building. It's an expansive acreage that has different gardens and different places. And so Solomon's colonnade is one of those places within the walls of, or the, the grounds of the temple. So where these early Christians are gathering in Solomon's colonnade is in the temple. That's where they're meeting. And that's about as in, in your face as you can get in the first century religious world. So imagine you're the high priest, and uh, you're the center of the religious world. People come to you for advice, for teaching, to he for healing, for uh, the meeting of, of some financial needs if you're poor, and now this rogue group sets up right in, on your property. And they're showing up every week, sometimes daily, and people are now going to them, not you. So this other group is now getting all the attention. Does that start to make sense, why this is so threatening to them? And then while the apostles are in jail, Luke tells us that an angel of the Lord appears and he opens the jail for them. And then he says to them, as he releases them, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. And at that point, wouldn't it be easy to just kind of tone it down, like to back it off a little? But in verse 21, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts again, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. So they're right back at it. And I can see here where Luke has a little bit of a sense of humor as he describes what happens the next morning as the high priest and his staff show up to work and they come in expecting that um, they'll be able to deal with these troublemakers who the night before they locked up in jail. But when the jailers get to work, Peter and his associates are no longer there. The jail's locked up, but the prisoners are gone. And that's kind of confusing, to say the least, right? So, and they're, they're worried, because who's going to take the blame for this one? And then in verse 25, while that's all happening, someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Thank you. I didn't want to be the only one that found that to be funny. <laughs> what the, you know, scratching their heads. And so the supervisor and other officers go to arrest them. But they do it really carefully, Luke says, not with force, because uh, they were afraid of the people. 
who had gathered to listen. So they did it in the nicest way they could. Nothing to see here, people. You know, we're just going to go away here for a while. And the apostles that are preaching the gospel are taken straight to court. And they stand before the Sanhedrin, which are the ju Jewish judges of that court. And they say to Peter and the other apostles, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So that's a reference to Peter's first ser sermon in Acts 2, where he put the finger on the Jewish leaders that had Jesus executed. But the, these apostles, they're not intimidated at all. At least they don't show it. In verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. So right here you have civil disobedience, right? But what's super interesting about this is the dynamic that is happening here of how the apostles respond to human authority and God's purposes. And it isn't, it isn't just like cut and dried. It's noteworthy to, to just see how they draw their lines. For instance, they allow themselves to be arrested. Yet they leave the jail when the angel opens the door and says, go preach the gospel. They allow themselves to be arrested again. But when they're told they must stop giving the gospel, they say, we must obey God rather than you. Now, number one, let's just let's take a moment to note the incredible courage that must have taken. There, there's no... Um, accountable justice system at this time. And so they're actually like dealing in their own lives here as they know what happened to their Lord and Savior, right? So they, but, so they refuse to stop talking about this new life. But the determination to obey God rather than human beings isn't applied universally. They're remarkably compliant in other civic matters. And so they seem to have a pretty humble spirit and, ob and obedience to certain civic laws and to law enforcement. They seem very willing to respond to a lot of matters where they draw the line is refusing to give the gospel. I find that interesting. It's not a sermon. It's just a thought, something to carry forward. Then Peter, being the bold one that he is, lives out this refusal to stop preaching the gospel, and he takes the opportunity to preach it to the ones who are telling him not to do it anymore. You should just take the time to read that section. And it reminds them that this same council that he's talking to judged Jesus and had him executed, and it's kind of like a shorter version of what he preached in Acts 2, which tells me you can re-preach your sermons if you shorten them. <laughs> and their response when they heard this, verse 33, they were furious and wanted to put them in de to death. So in other words, not receptive to the message, right? And it's not looking good for the apostles at this time, and they're just getting started. But then this Hail Mary happens. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, who we'll learn more about as we get later uh, into the book, of Acts, the Apostle Paul studied under this Pharisee. He defends um, Peter and the Apostles, and he reminds the council that uh, they've overreacted in the past to some rogue groups and have paid a heavy price for doing so. And then, like, he has this statement that he makes. It has become part of 
ideology in Christianity, words of wisdom, however you want to put it. I'm going to, like, here it is in verse 38. He says, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So you could summarize Gamaliel's theology or his philosophy here like this. If God wants something to succeed, you can't stop it. And if he doesn't want it to succeed, it will fail. What do you think about that? How many of you say that's good theology and ideology? How many of you say I'm not so sure? How many of you just not going to vote because you think it's a trick question? <laughs> okay. Do you guys have a problem with commitment? <laughs> well, they buy this. They buy his ideology. But it is something to think about. And in verse 40, his speech persuaded them, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged, which means beaten. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they release them, but don't talk about Jesus anymore. He's like Bruno. Thank you for getting that, Encanto fans. And just so you get, make sure you get the point, here's a beating to go with it. So what does one do after being directed by the governmental officials to not preach the gospel anymore and to, and to make sure you get the point uh, by whipping you? Um, what does one do? Well, in verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, that is Jesus, and day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, as you do. So they, they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So we've covered a lot of ground today. I know this is zoomed through almost two chapters. And what I want to do is I circle back around uh, in the message this morning is I want to make one stop on the way to like what I think is the main thought. And, and I'm going to like frame it in two questions, okay? So the first question is this, and I referred to this earlier in the message, does the Bible teach a redistribution of wealth? Because that's, that's what it seems like happened here. So what about this practice of selling their properties and then bring them together communally and using those proceeds to help one another? Is this what the Bible's teaching we should do? Is that what Jesus taught? Is it what he meant when he said, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you? Now, in history... Over the centuries, there have been groups that have taken this, this thing literally. Um, so think about this. Jesus and his disciples, as they traveled around, we know that they were funded by some wealthy women. Uh, there are all kinds of cases of the course of the last 2,000 years of monastic living and groups kind of like going off on their own and kind of, kind of living communally and, of course, modern examples today of, uh, would be like the Amish and, and other groups. Some have even gone so far as to say, well, this is, this is why communism 
uh, is biblical. But I want to point out that it's different in two ways. First of all, it was voluntary that they did this. And second of all, private ownership does continue in the church. So that can't be the answer. So this is not a giveaway of all things. We, in fact, we've learned here at Sunridge in our, in our study, uh, When Helping Hurts, that sometimes giving things can, be, can cause more harm than good. And it, sometimes it can be taken advantage of or it can actually not help the person for us to financially support an individual. And in fact, you know, like in the, in the far distant past, I, I, I can recall a time when I was leading life groups here at Sunridge, all of our home groups, and one of the home group uh, leaders came to me with a problem. They didn't know what to do because they had had a couple in their group. These people are long gone. You don't even know who they are, so don't try to figure out who I'm talking about. And um, they, they were talking about their financial struggles. And so the group put together a lot of money to help them. They just did it on their own, which was beautiful, right? And then several weeks later, this couple showed up, and she had a brand-new wedding set on and talked about how God had blessed them, and some extra money came in, so they went out and did that. Yeah. And I was supposed to solve that for them. <laughs> I said, be warmed and filled. God bless you. So what does the Bible teach about the sharing of resources? Specific to this context, I want to say, number one, the communal uh, sharing of the early church was the result of very real needs, very real needs of first century Christians. So this is like a specific time and something that's going on. So there's no safety net. Remember the stories of Lazarus and the rich man? And their generosity is a testimony of their genuine faith and their love for people in need. And so, like, let's just not miss that the church rallied in a way that is so remarkable. Um, but it was the result of something that specifically was happening. More generally, just like take a broader look at um, our needs and how we approach that. I have two thoughts for you and they're kind of in paradox with one another. Number one is God expects us to provide for ourselves and our families through work. That's what Paul said when he wrote his letter to the Thessalonians, a church in Thessalonica. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So the Bible doesn't let us off the hook for working hard. And that work is supposed to provide for our needs. The second thought is this, that God expects those who have discretionary resources to look for ways to help others. And that's in Paul's letter to Pastor Timothy in his first letter, in chapter 6, verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world to not be arrogant or to put hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So these two things, you should work to provide for your needs, and if you have extra, you should look for opportunity to help people. These have to live together. So we don't get to pick one verse or the other, our favorite, and quote it over and over again. We have to have these thoughts live in tension. There are people that 
that are struggling that need to discover the dignity of having work to do and providing for their own needs. And there are people who need help. And it isn't always easy to tell the difference. But we owe it to one another to do both of these. And of course, any discussion on needs has to be shaped by the teachings of Jesus when it comes to uh, unequal treatment, the immigrant, the medically or mentally ill, or poverty that's been caused by injustice or an, an in the, uh, unequal opportunity. Then the main thought that ties these events together, I want to turn to. So that's like, that was my little stop on the way. Here's the main idea, and I'm going to bring all this together, okay? Where does unity of mind and heart come from? What was it that enabled this church in the first century to be this way? Um, and we can see this just in this section. We can see some examples, and there are at least three characteristics, I think, jump out of this text. And this is in your notes, uh, marks of a unified church. Number one, one mark of a unified church is extraordinary generosity. It's obvious that they're remarkably generous. I mean, to sell your stuff so that you can help someone else. They sold those assets, compiled them, and then had them distributed. We're going to see an example of how the church took care of people next week in Acts chapter 6. But the way Luke describes this generosity is that it was the result of the power of God's grace. This is God working in them, creating generosity, which when God is working in our hearts, that's one of the things that happens. But also, doesn't it say something, not just about what God was doing in their lives, but doesn't it say something about how they felt about one another as well, how they cared for people? that they loved and were part of their lives. You know, uh, like, we're, like I'm kind of like traveling through a period of my life where like I've done this and now I'm seeing many of my friends do it when it comes to our parents and um, making sure that our parents have their needs met as they get older, like, you know, and, um, you know, sometimes that means financial, sometimes it means just like, you know, helping them with uh, grocery shopping or lawn work or, or something, a repair. But like a lot of you, I can tell because your faces look like mine, you're in that phase of life. And that's like, that's what we do when we love people. We care for them. And I know people that are going to extraordinary, um, you know, uh, efforts to do that like helping their parents work through all the sale of their properties and, and, you know, making sure that they have somewhere to stay if it's an assisted living, having their parents come and live with them. Maybe some of you are you're like, yeah, I'm right there. I'm doing that right now. That's an example of how you, it's, it's like, it's an evidence of how we feel about people. And one mark of any societal group that cares deeply about one another is that they're generous toward each other. It isn't just financial. It's, it's every part of us. We're generous towards people rather than like greedy and closed. Gener uh, generosity is a mark of unity. Another mark of the unity of this first century church is they were willing to confront sin and hypocrisy among themselves. 
Remember the old pirate movies when they'd find a coin and they'd bite it to see if it was real or not? This is, this is um, a way of biting unity in the church. Don't you love how I like bring in these amazing illustrations to help you connect to my super intelligent thoughts? I love how Luke gives us this picture of this united church, but also revealing that they had people among them that were doing destructive things to themselves and to others. And rather than tolerate that indefinitely or just ignore it, they humbly confront it and they live with the consequences. Or in Ananias and Sapphira's case, they don't live with it. Now, you would think that confronting things would destroy unity in a way. It's like, that's just going to be upsetting to people if we, if we talk about that. But the truth is here, they cared enough about each other that they would step in to deal and to talk about some uncomfortable things. I mean, they could have just ignored Ananias and Sapphira's here. Sapphira. And sometimes I think we, we misunderstand unity to mean it's like, well, everybody just do whatever you want to do. Let everyone be themselves, which in one case, that's true, right? At one level, we're not, we're not all like little rubber stamp robots. Overlooking our differences can be a virtue. That's about our differences, though. But what we see here is one of the marks of a unified church is a humble willingness to call a spade a spade, and if you're a spade, to own it. And it takes both. And what we see happening in the typical church is, one, we're reluctant to even say anything anymore. Or we just say things meanly. Or if, if we say something, if we confront a destructive behavior, uh, people just leave, right? They just choose, like you can just go down the street which on one hand is a great thing. You can find a church that suits you, but like I think a lot of us, we keep running from the things that God is trying to teach us. Now, I'm not talking about all of us going around like as the Holy Spirit and pointing out what's wrong with everybody. Don't get that idea. But you do, I mean, I think it's good for us to ask the question, how good are we at policing our own? Of like facing up to the church's hypocrisy. And the things that we're just overlooking. You know, I mean, uh, right now, the Southern Baptist Convention is all in the news because of decades of sexual abuse cover-up. And all the while, in the last few years, they've just hounded Beth Moore for teaching the Bible in churches. And all the while, they've been, you know, covering this whole thing up. And Liberty University, the largest Christian university in the nation kept the Jerry Falwell Jr. scandal buried. Many of them knew about it. Their board knew about things, and they fired those board members who made issues of it. And then when they finally did sever him, they gave him an $11 million severance package. So I'm hoping for something similar, people. <laughs> How bad do you want me to leave? You know, the church is supposed to be the moral conscience in the world. And a mark of the unified church is that we will say things to each other 
And we will confront issues that are destructive or sinful, as the Bible calls it. And then we will remain together and work it out. That's what the church is supposed to do. But that is not our reputation in the culture right now. That's not saying every church is that way. But, you know, these things are big. And, of course, the media wants to highlight that on us. There's thousands of churches, churches across this valley that day in and day out, they do the right thing. But how is it that we, we have this level of hypocrisy in the church today? And people just turn a blind eye. And we just get kind of accustomed to just like ignoring things that are going on in, in our world, in our circle. Never mind what's happening out there. We have to be both willing to constructively confront sin, and we have to be willing to listen and acknowledge when we failed to hit the mark. And a church that does that will stand out in society instead of being just one more example of hypocrisy. The last characteristic I want to note of a unified church is that in the first century, they were relentlessly committed to the gospel. And as we read this whole section, don't you see how focused they were, how single-focused they were on their mission? Yeah, they love each other. Yeah, they're taking care of each other. But they also have a passion to fulfill the mission of Jesus in the world. And one of the problems of unity in organizations today, and the churches are organizations, is that we don't agree on the mission. And uh, I think in the evangelical community, we're getting confused about this, why we're here. We are here to share the gospel with the world and to live out the image of God in the places that God has put us. Let me give you an example of this. That, and it, it, like when we have this, it's like a lot of the peripheral stuff that makes us all fussy, it, it doesn't matter anymore. It's like a football team. Can you imagine that? I'm going to tell a football illustration. I know, it's so weird. Um, what, what is the goal of a football team? Win. To win. So how do you win? You score more points than they do, and you keep them from scoring more points than you do. That's football, 101. In fact, just watch interviews from now on. You know, it's like, well, what's your game plan for the game? Well, you know, like, we really got to execute on offense and make sure that we're, like, driving. And then on our defense, we got we to shut them down and not let them score any points. Same speech every time. That's <laughs> football 101. And you know what's weird? It's like I played football from the time I was a peewee through college, and um, we were all different. I grew up in Miami. I played ball in Colorado bunch of Colorado people. It never got warm there. I could, you know, like the only upside of that was never thirsty after football practice. And like, we all came from different lives. We liked different music. You know, we did different things. There were Christians and pagans. And it's like, but you know what? When we came on the football field, we were about playing football and winning games. None of that other stuff mattered. Why can't the church be like that more? That's just the world according to Brit. You see, unity is not an end in itself, nor is community. It's the result of a common passion. Unity is the result of a common goal. An organization can't set out, we're going to create unity. 
That doesn't work. People are too different. It's the common mission that keeps us together. And we can all contribute to that in a church when we agree on why we are a church. Why does Sunridge exist? Help people find and follow Jesus. That's what we're about, in case you didn't know. So that should tell you a lot about what we're going to do as a church and what we are not going to do. We are here to help people find and follow Jesus. And in our vision of, of how we do it, I'm just going to give you this one because I'm, afra I'm afraid. Only Lisa is going to know the answer to this and maybe an elder or two is to deepen faith, bring hope, and live love. That's how we do it. Now, where did that come from? That came from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said, now these th three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So if these three, th according to the Apostle Paul, these three things are going to remain forever, these are the lasting things, then I say we invest our time in that, right? Because what, what we do is a church we want it to last. It begins with an ever-deepening faith, the kind of faith that is grounding it is based in the scripture and the teachings of Jesus. And that, that forms our other things. We stand on the scripture and our faith, and that faith grows deep roots so that we have trust in God and we have solid faith, solid doctrine, and beliefs. And what does that generate? It generates people who want to bring hope to the world. That's our jam. We bring hope. You know, the other day, Cindy and I were driving, and we it was like we had like an epiphany. It was like all we were doing was complaining as we drove. <laughs> this is going to mess your head up, I'm going to tell you. So, like, we, just, we started laughing. It's like, like all we've been doing, we sound like old people. <laughs> and we're so young. And like, we're like, you know, like, man, we're just like, rah, rah, rah. and I said, so we were right then we were getting off to exit at Rancho California Road off the 15. And I'm like, Cindy, let's, let's do something. Let's complain as much as we can from here to the house. And we live in Temecue Hill, so it's not that far of a drive. And so we made the left and like, man, you know, these lanes aren't, we just started doing it on purpose. Hey, whatever happened to Marie Calendars? You know, that place would have stayed open if they had good management. And what about Claim Jumper? Why isn't there a, like a, you know, a, a Cracker Barrel in there, or like Spaghetti Factory? And it's like, look at these people, like OBC, that's the same old Patton Oscars. Now they got beer. Who cares about that? It's like, you know, this guy can't get in the lane. We just started doing it on purpose. It's really fun, but it's like, it's kind of scary at how good I was at that. <laughs> I don't want to be that person. We have the hope of the gospel, and our faith should create a person that brings hope to the world, because, and that will put us in the mode to do the most important thing, which is to live out and reflect God's love. What is the most powerful thing I can do with my life? John 13, 34, Jesus said it. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. What's the key point there? 
Love one another. Okay. Last. Ben, I'm going to have you come up. I just have one practical last fill-in-the-blank for you to, like, turn this personal. Like, we've talked about how the church felt unified and, so, and, and the ways that they did it, that they were super generous with one another, and they, they were so committed to the gospel and what they were trying to do. But let's boil it down to you and me. People experience oneness in their church when they agree with the mission. They feel a sense of belonging, and they can see how they're making a meaningful contribution. In other words, we experience oneness as a body of Christ when we believe in what that church is about. Number two, that we invest in people and relationships so that we know faces, we have a sense of belonging. And when we know we're making a difference in our church, and a church that is focused on these things will have a powerful impact in the world. And a church that isn't, that gets sidetracked from the mission that God has given us, um, it will always be just kind of flailing around and fussing at each other. A church that is of one mind and heart has this impact. In verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify of the, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. That's what I want for Sunridge. Do you want it? Okay, six of us, we want it. That's awesome. Who else wants it? Who wants it? So that a year from now, five years from now, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, this church, as it has for the last 30 years, makes an impact in the world that they say, as we testify to the resurrection, we don't get sidetracked on all the nonsense that's going on in the world. We stay focused on the mission God has given us, and we bring hope to the world, and we show love to the people that God brings into our life. God's grace will be powerfully at work in us. That's what I want. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.